couple of weeks ago I was here and I was uh, talking about the Trinity and knowing and understanding God. And I had a little question there at the bottom of the screen. So I actually took the same screen and I changed the question. Okay, we're going to look at the Trinity from a different angle. Today I want to look at knowing and understanding God and ask the question, is the Holy Spirit a person? When I spoke previously, and this was two weeks ago, it was focused mostly on how the Bible presents the oneness of the Father and the Son as a family, rather than using what I consider, and even people who believe it consider, a much more complicated kind of metaphysical trinity explanation. But even in that, when we're talking about the oneness of the Father and Son, well, the relationship of the Holy Spirit, well, we didn't really touch on that, did we? Well, we're going to kind of cover that angle today. The relationship of the Holy Spirit to God. Didn't address it last time. Couldn't dig in on that today. Just a big enough topic that uh, seemed right to break it into a couple pieces. And so today we're going to try and answer the question, is the Holy Spirit a third person in a trinity? And... I think, more important, how does this affect my personal relationship with God? So that we go beyond just, well, we're correct. And that we, we have the you know, actual right interpretation of Scripture. That's important. It's a foundation, right? You want the proper foundation of a right reading of Scripture. But where does it lead? Where does it go to? How does it affect you? I hope to bring that into today's message. And so as a result, I'm going to kind of skip over some things you might be thinking, oh, he's going to do this, he's going to do that, he's going to do this. So let's start off with this thing, the spirit. The Hebrew word for spirit is ruach, ruach. And in Greek, the word is pneuma. And in both languages, the basic definition is pretty much the same. Breath or wind, the wind that blows. It's also used, though, to indicate an invisible force. You know? And Jesus made this same connection, drew these ideas together, when he said in John 3, verse 8, when he was talking to Nicodemus, what did he say? He said, well, you hear the sound of the wind, you know, and you can see the wind blowing in the leaves of the trees. I'm adding, I'm embellishing here. But you can see and hear the wind, but you can't tell where it's coming from. You can't see it. You see the effects of it. So Jesus is using the same basic idea connection there. Wind and an invisible force. And he uses this to describe the spirit. Now, the Bible consistently speaks of the Holy Spirit as the power of God, the Father, and Jesus Christ, the Son. And it's a power that is at work in our world and in those who believe and are baptized. Yet, and we touched on this the last time I spoke on this, the dogma of the Trinity insists that the Holy Spirit must be understood as a thinking, feeling, rational personality standing there alongside the Father and the Son. Now, as mentioned in the previous message, the Trinity teaching, which includes the Holy Spirit as a divine person, is considered to be the acid test, the litmus test, for who is and who is not considered a valid Christian. And I used the example last time of a friend of mine who was trying to get their, um, their child into a, a homeschool group, Christian-oriented homeschool group, and they, they were like, oh yeah, ready. they were ready to sign on the dotted line and get her in a group, and they said, oh, so the Trinity. You're a believer in the Trinity, right? And she said, well, no. Oh, oh. Oh, and so she wasn't going to be in the group because without agreeing it, you know, you're not really a Christian and you, you know, can't even be saved. You know, and, and this is what a lot of people have out there, but, you know, they really, 
the average churchgoer in all the, the churches out there is really pretty confused about the Trinity. I mean, even the, the scholars who really get into it admit it's pretty, pretty incomprehensible. And the average churchgoer is, is confused about what the Trinity teaching means. And especially, I've read, I've read this, uh, I've read this uh, from some guy who's a Pentecostal minister, and they really get into the Spirit and the personality of the Spirit. The average person is especially confused about how the Holy Spirit can be a person. That's a, a you know, particular point of the, the Trinity that really is baffling, extra baffling. And the whole thing's baffling, but that's extra baffling. And so for the most part, what people do is when they don't understand something, they just ignore it. You know, they just kind of ignore it. Nah, well, you know, we know what the scriptures say about the Holy Spirit. And, you know, we've, we've heard the Trinity. Let's just get on with life. So most people just kind of sidestep the whole thing and for the most part, ignore it. But at the same time, Christian churches insist that it is the central doctrine of scripture. Go with me to John 1, verse 1. We looked at this verse in the last message on the Trinity. Took it in a different angle, focused mostly on the Father and the Son. So it says this, verses 1 and 2 of the first chapter of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and it goes on and it describes more. Something's missing, isn't it? Yeah, there's no mention of a Holy Spirit who was with God and who also was God. There's, there's nothing in there. That would be a good place to put it, right? Because that is the go-to scripture when you want to try and dis say there's the Father and the Son and they're one. Okay, but the Holy Spirit, no, you don't hear anything about him. We'll, we'll come around to that again. But uh, let's take a look at how did the Holy Spirit end up as part of the Trinity. So to do this, I have to take you on another little history tour. I hope you don't mind my history tours. Uh, I think that history is very important. I try to keep it succinct and I try and compact it all in there and not get into a lot of the extraneous details. But uh, before we even get into this subject about how the Spirit ended up as part of the Trinity, let's just go back a little bit. Jesus repeatedly warned, this is before the church even started, he repeatedly warned about false teachers who would rise up among the church. He said it a lot. And uh, he, for example, he said, many will come in my name and they will deceive many, right? That's one of the things that he said. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was consistently striving with false teachers within the church. You do a survey of Paul's epistles and I think you're going to come to that yeah, observation. Wow, he was dealing with a lot of people who really vexed his soul. <laughs> They were getting up and they were teaching stuff within the church and it just drove them up the wall. By the 90s, when the Apostle John was getting quite aged, uh, false teachers had gained an upper hand in key congregations in the church in the, in the uh, Mediterranean area to the point where you read this in first, not first John, second John, third John, where uh, some of these congregations were refusing even to accept the representatives, representatives of John himself. John, who knew Jesus personally. And they would say, no, you can't come in. Okay, after the last apostle John died, and that was also sometime in the, the 90s, what happened was this veil of darkness descended upon the church. And we don't know much about what happened in the church for multiple decades. There's no news, no radio silence. You don't know anything about what's happening. And then 50, 60 years later, the curtain rises back up. Ta-da! And there's the church again. But what you see is something very, very different from what had been there before. Something had radically changed. Uh, you know, true believers were still around and uh, they still persisted. 
but they were increasingly marginalized and kind of chased into the far corners of the empire. But let's fast forward to the, uh, the Council of Nicaea. And I spoke about the Council of Nicaea, uh, which happened in 325 AD. So this is like uh, no, 280 years later. Uh, and at the Council of Nicaea, that's the first time that the concept of God as a trinity was floated out there okay, at this conference. And at that time, the official statement that was put forth, which we read through last time, had a statement in it about the Holy Spirit that only really covered the Holy Spirit as something that we needed to believe in, right? We agree with that. I agree with that. Not that I'm saying that I agree with the Nicene Creed, but that I believe in the Holy Spirit. You do too. Otherwise, why would you have gotten baptized? So the official statement only included the Holy Spirit as something that should be, be believed in, uh, but not specifically as a person co-equal with the Father and the Son. Okay, and there was this guy named Athanasius. This is a picture I got of, uh, I doubt he looked like that, they kind of made things up, but uh, this is a historic picture of Athanasius. He had a rockin' beard. He'd fit right in with the hip culture nowadays. So he first put forth the idea of the Holy Spirit's personhood at the Council of Nicaea, but he just didn't have the clout and you needed clout. You needed clout and influence. He did not have the clout to put this idea of his through and get it passed. No way. But he was a very persistent man. If you read a little bit about this guy, he was very persistent. And he kept the argument going his whole life. He would not let go. And uh, for decades, heated debate took place about the nature of God. You know, what is the meaning of substance? And they would argue about these little grammatical air, uh, distinctions in the Greek language and so forth. To the, and it got very heated. And I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. It actually resulted in huge riots involving tens of thousands of people. And hundreds of people died. Because people started killing each other over stuff like this. So uh, he was very effective in keeping his, die, his uh, idea open. So, but it also led to riots and bloodshed. Now at the council, I introduced this other character, Constantine, that you might remember. He's the emperor, and he had an agenda. He wanted to enforce a unity of opinion on this church, which he didn't really understand very well. But he wanted to uh, use the church, and that's what he was up to. He was wanted to use the church as a tool for bringing his empire together, the Roman Empire, because they were having a lot of internal strife and all kinds of political problems and social problems and stuff like that. And he saw this, this religion was very popular. Maybe we could use this to unify the empire. Okay, But the Council of Nicaea, they came out with this statement, but then there was all these riots and social turmoil about the stuff that came up in the Nicaean Council. So this wasn't really working. So what happened was they had to convene another conference, and this would be about 56 years later, and this would be the Council of Constantinople. Not quite as famous as the Council of Nicaea, but this took place in 381 AD. And the debate over the nature of God had by now shifted to discussing the nature of the Holy Spirit. And Athanasius, the guy you saw previously, he was dead. He has gone. You know, 56 years have passed by. He was, he was out of the picture. But there were other men who picked up this cause from him. Uh, three of note, Basil, Gregory, and a second, Gregory. They took up the cause and they championed the cause. And uh, they represented it at the Council of Constantinople in 381 AD. Now, as to what happened at this council, kind of like the picture. It's very, you know, we don't have a lot of information. We, have almost, we know almost nothing about what they talked about. You know, what did they debate? What, were, what was the substance of their conversation? You know, what were the issues that they discussed? Now, we don't really know a whole lot about that. It was all just lost. What we do know, though, is that the majority of representatives at this council did not accept or agree with this new formula 
which was putting you know, from Athanasius and these other guys, which was saying that the Holy Spirit should be considered as a person. The majority of people were like, what? What? What do you? No. No, no, that's not in Scripture. How can you, how do you make that leap like that? And in fact, most of the Macedonian representatives, which would be the half of uh, northern Greece up there, so it would be a lot of people, a significant portion of the guys who were there, the Macedonian representatives all walked out. They walked out of these proceedings. This is, this is ridiculous. You guys are talking about crazy stuff. They walked out. They didn't want to be a part of it. So it wasn't a slam dunk, was it? No, no, it was not. I put it to you, though, that once again, the debate, like the Council of Nicaea, was settled by political operatives. It wasn't settled on biblical grounds. It was settled on political grounds. And the two political operatives that I think are worthy of note here are the new emperor, which, which was Theodosius. Right? Constantine was gone. He was dead. Theodosius, who had just been, basically just been baptized, didn't really know a whole lot about the scriptures or the issues at hand. And then there was this other guy, Nectarius, who was a senator, who was a political mover and shaker, and uh, he wasn't a baptized member of the church. And they, they thought, well, we need this guy in here to help us work out a solution. Quick, get him baptized. So they baptized this guy so he could participate in this conference. Well, that, that, that levels up your confidence, doesn't it? No, it, no, it doesn't. They were looking for a solution, a political solution. They brought in some political operators that could just deal with this stuff. Um, and somehow or another, because I told you, we don't really know all the conversations that they had, but somehow or ever, through these, these guys, Gregory and Basil and those fellows, managed to get this controversial minority view accepted as the only view. Pretty amazing. Maybe it's better, I mean, for the Trinitarian cause, it's better that we don't know what they talked about. But what we do know is that, you know, you, when you pull back the veil, it's like, ta-da, the Trinity. Wow. How'd they get that working through? So the formula that, that, that this council of Constantinople came up with included the following statement. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. That had kind of been in the previous one. Who with the Father and Son, is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, etc., 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 etc. So they changed the way the statement went. And with this little introduction here, the Trinity, as you and I know it today, as it's generally understood today, became the official belief and the official teaching concerning the nature of God. All right, the power of the Roman state. And this is a pretty important feature in these discussions. When you look at these major changes in, in teaching of truth, the only way to really get an idea that, this, that like this, that was so far-fetched and so unscriptural, would be the power of the state. Now, the emperor Theodosius, and I think that's a picture of Theodosius, this an old coin. He was a lot like Constantine. He had an agenda. He wanted to use this now very popular Christian religion to create social unity. You know, the people are tearing apart the fabric of society. And, you know, it was very practical because if they could do that, then the empire could focus on you know, repelling the barbarian hordes that were invading them from over the Danube River and were always coming and stealing their stuff and, you know, sacking their cities and stuff like that, then they could have a united front against their common enemies, right? Instead of, you know, like in the, these riots, killing one another. That's, that's not what the emperor wanted. That's not what the, you know, the state wanted. They wanted order so that we can defend our borders. And we can use this Christian religion. This is where Theodosius and Constantine before him were coming from. Now, once the document came out of the Council of Constantinople, once something was down on paper, then the state could move in and enforce. I mean, I don't think Theodosius really cared that much. 
I mean, he, he, I guess he had an opinion, right? But what he wanted was something they could all agree on. And then I'll enforce it. So he uh, is responsible for a couple of statements. They're kind of small. You probably can't read them from back there. First, he issued an edict that said this. So this would be the first block of text up there. We now order that all churches are to be handed over to the bishops who profess Father, Son, and Holy Spirit of a single majesty or the same glory of one splendor who establish no difference by sacrilegious separation, but who affirm the order of the Trinity by recognizing the persons and uniting the Godhead. So this is, you know, this is coming from the government. And basically what he's doing there, you know, if you, if you think about it, he's handing over control of all the property and all the assets and all the positions to people who, believe, who followed and agreed to this doctrine. So he's going to take hand control of everything over to people who thought right. And once he'd done that, he went a little further. This is the second block of type here. This is interesting as well. It says, all right, here's his second edict on this. Let us believe the one deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in equal majesty and in a holy trinity. We authorize the followers of this law to assume the title of universal Christians. And I, I'm using the word universal instead of Catholic there because at that time the Catholic Church didn't really exist. It was, it was off in the future. It just meant a universal church. Okay? In other words, what he's saying is the one true church. People who believe this, who follow this, are representatives of the one true church is what he's getting at. But as for the others, since in our judgment they are foolish madmen, we decree that they should be branded with the ignominious name of heretics and shall not presume to give their assemblies the name of churches. They will suffer in the first place the chastisement of divine condemnation. And in the second punishment, which our authority in accordance with the will of heaven shall decide to inflict. In other words, we're going to enforce this at the point of the sword. So the power of the Roman state moves in and the Trinity teaching and the divine personhood of the Holy Spirit, which was a concept never taught by Jesus or the apostles or any biblical writer, but, but rather is, you know, and we went through this in the previous message, is a theoretical construct developed like 350 years after Jesus' death. But now, it was permanently, because this, this lasts to our very day, permanently, this idea is locked in place with all other views locked out. You can't believe anything else and be a follower of Christ, except this. So that's the history lesson. How did the Holy Spirit get in there? So another question I have is, well, how does this matter? Proper teaching about the Holy Spirit matters. I've got two ways of looking at it. The family, the authority model. The teaching of the Holy Spirit as a third person in a trinity is problematic for a number of reasons. One, it causes confusion. That right off the bat is not good. What the Bible actually does reveal is way better. It just is way better and it's more functional, which is a presentation and an explanation of God as a family. And it is also an explanation of how God is at work in you. And this is where it becomes practical, and this is where it starts to affect men and women who sit in church. And this is how this idea, it's not all just philosophy, it affects how you think about God's interaction with you. 
And it also affects how you perceive and respond to the idea of how you can and will be at one with God, which is a motivator for you to change your behavior so that you can be one with God. So it has a moral implication as well. And it affects how you think and react and respond to the idea that you can enter the universe ruling God family. All these things are touched on in a negative way by the teaching of the Trinity. And I believe that the Trinity teaching makes God more remote. He's kind of out there. He's more self-contained and way stranger and weirder than anything you see in Scripture. The Trinity teaching, more remote, very different, and kind of weird. The scriptural way which God presents himself in is a family, which was the real heart and core of the first message on the Trinity that I gave. And it's a family which achieves oneness through a unity of mind, will, and purpose. And it's, again, it's, a, it's an understanding of what it means to be at one that affects how you behave. You can't be at one with other people if you're not keeping God's commands. If you're not living God's way, you're not going to be at one. And that's what oneness in the scripture is really all about. Not about the essence of your substance, of your being, of your ontological reality. No! And it's a presentation of God that's a family, and a family that you can be a part of. You can be a part of. And it, but, you know, if you, if you want to be part of that family, the God's family, then you have to change the way you think and behave. You can join a family. You can become part of a family. You can't join a trinity. So it touches your very hope of, of your eternal future. Now the role and roles of father and son clearly present God as a family. That is very clear. A father, son, what are they? They are a family. It's a family relationship, a family interaction. The inclusion of the Holy Spirit as a third person standing there with them, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it doesn't fit. I mean, what is it? Is it an eccentric uncle? You know, is it like that weird neighbor who's always raking leaves onto your lawn? Um, is the cousin? It doesn't fit the family model. It doesn't fit in. The Holy Spirit is not presented anywhere in Scripture as part of a recognizable family or member of a family. Now, the family pattern is important in other ways, which, again, we touched on more thoroughly in the previous message, but the family pattern also portrays the importance of authority and submission which are the means whereby we can accomplish peace and harmony. We go to the feast and we talk about peace and we talk about harmony and we talk about eternity and how great it's going to be. What's going to make it great? Well, we have to change the way we think about authority and submission. And we get this picture of authority and submission in a better way through the explanation that God gives us of the Father and the Son and the family than any other way. Because within a family, with a father and a son, that peace and the harmony that you're looking at is balanced with love and respect. I mean, if all you're thinking or all I'm thinking of is, yes, in the future there will be authority and there will be submission, that's kind of grim, isn't it? It's kind of bleak. It's kind of the stuff that you read about in weird science fiction novels that talk about how awful the future is going to be. What makes it work is the balancing of love and respect that you find within a family model. 
And we've, we've all been in families, and I know not every family is perfect, and I know some families have real issues, but you can understand the concept of submission and authority within a family as being balanced by love and respect by, by seeing good families, right? And so it makes sense, and you can see, yeah, that, that, I can see how that would work. Including the Holy Spirit as a third person gets us off track. Because not only does it not have any clear place in the family pattern, father, son, what? It doesn't fit any recognizable pattern of authority or submission. The father and the son, well, you, you kind of get the relationship right off the bat. Oh, yeah, yeah, fathers and sons, there's an authority and a submission relationship. The Holy Spirit just steps outside the whole thing. It doesn't fit a pattern of submission and authority that's recognizable or understandable to us. Those are the, some of the real problems that are there, baked into this idea of the Trinity and the Holy Spirit, especially as a third person. It's not just an exercise in you know, biblical correctness. We want that, because that's the foundation of truth. But where does the truth take us, and how does it change the way we think and behave? So, how is the Holy Spirit portrayed in the Bible? There are so many scriptures that I, I could, and I suppose you could, you know, might say should, turn to on this subject. What I'm going to do, though, is I'm going to refer you to the church booklet on the Trinity. And uh, we don't have them out in the foyer here, but I think we've got some back in the locker. You want one, I will get it to you, okay? The church booklet on the Trinity covers a lot of issues concerning the Trinity, and I'm just going to refer to that booklet here. It has an entire chapter answering the question, is the Holy Spirit a person? Is it? Just a chapter out of a you know, larger booklet. I think it's like 100 pages long. And it, and it uses many, many, many scriptural references covering the key concepts of how the Bible actually portrays the Holy Spirit. I broke it into these four categories here. The power of God, an impersonal reference, it's not included, and translation bias. So the power of God. I'll dwell on this more, but I'm just going to cover it right off here. Okay, through using a lot of different scriptures, the booklet's going to show you that the Holy Spirit is shown to be the power of God at work. That it is the mind and the character of God that... It is also the power behind divine revelation. You know, by the, by the power of the Spirit, the, the prophets were inspired. They wrote down the words that you now have, not by any private interpretation, but the power of the Spirit. It is also, the Holy Spirit is also the power of God in the sense that it is the life force, very, the very force of life through which God begets all things, all creation, both spiritual and physical. So the second category I have is impersonal. Now, again, the, the booklet will go through all this, and I'm not going to hear, but it goes through many, many scriptures, cites a lot of different places, concerning the Holy Spirit described in very impersonal terms. What does that mean? Well, the Holy Spirit is a gift. It is a gift from God. It can be given without limit. Uh, it can be poured out. We are baptized with it. You can drink it. You can partake of it. You can be filled with it. It will renew us. It must be stirred up in us. And by contrast, the Father and the Son within Scripture are consistently described and presented as living, thinking, feeling beings. So the third category I've got there is not included. Not included. Okay. In the opening greetings of all his epistles, and some, I know some of you have heard this before, and you look at the booklet if you want to look them up here, but in the opening greetings of all his epistles, Paul begins with a, a mention of, you know, in the name of our Father and, and, and his Son, Jesus Christ, and he will start every letter this way. And he mentions the Father and the Son, but he always, always, always leaves out the Holy Spirit. Why? 
Well, because he knew the Holy Spirit was not a person to be greeted. He believed in the Holy Spirit, the reality of the Holy Spirit, but wasn't a person to be addressed and greeted. Another place uh, in the visions that we have of God's throne room in various places, book of Revelation, for example, you'll see the Father, you'll see Christ, but not a third person called the Holy Spirit. You don't read about this third person who's standing next to the throne, who's the Holy Spirit. You don't, you don't see that. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is not a person to sit on or stand next to a throne. It's the power of the person who's sitting on the throne. The last one I've got is translation bias. And that would be answering the question, well, why do the scriptures refer to the Holy Spirit as him? Or whom? And in short, there's a Trinitarian bias of all those who translate the Bible into English and other languages, but we're talking about English. And that affects their use of pronouns. How they use pronouns to address the Holy Spirit in key places. Why do they use who instead of it, or, or you know, him instead of it, or they instead of it, or no. I got it all, I got my pronouns all mixed up. Well, I'm, I better be careful in this world. But people, always remember this, folks. That Bible that you have in your lap, every single one of them has been translated by someone who believes passionately in the Trinity. You have to be careful with the Bible that you've got. It is a tool to understand the truth of God. But it's got some issues that you be well, uh, be good for you to understand them. So the booklet goes through that and gives you all kinds of instances where, you know, the Holy Spirit is referred to in a personal rather, you know, than as an it or that. Or that. And that's a translation bias. So let's talk about the power of God. This, to me, is the real meat of, of, of what we're getting at here. And I want to start off by going to Matthew 1. I told you I'd come around to the power of God because I think that's the most important aspect here. And so we're going to take some time looking at it. In Matthew 1, chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, it says, but after um, Joseph is being addressed here, because he's got some worries about this Mary girl. It says, but after he considered this and an angel of the Lord appeared to him, in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. What is begotten in her is of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was begotten, conceived by the Holy Spirit, right? Everyone agrees on that. We're not the only people who, who think that's the way it worked. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, yet Jesus continually prayed to and addressed God the Father as his Father. Right? Not the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the simple answer to this is that the Holy Spirit was the power of God the Father at work begetting a child in the woman Mary. But if you, if you, you know, take it and say, no, the Holy Spirit, who is a person, conceived Jesus, everything starts to get really strange really fast. And it actually opens up, I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with an atheist about this, but it's one of, the, it's one of those key points of ridicule that non-believers will point out and say, well, you know, <laughs> who was Jesus praying to? You know, um, go to John 14. And verse 26, Jesus says, uh, All this I've spoken to you while still with you. Verse 26, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, which the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So the Father is sending forth his Spirit to you. Uh, let's read John 15, next chapter over, verse 26. Kind of says it again. 
When the Advocate comes, which I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, which goes out from the Father, it will testify about me. Notice that I changed all the pronouns. Yeah, I did. I did. So the Father sends forth that same power. I mean, we're talking about the same power that was used to conceive the child in Mary. That is the same power that God is sending forth to form a new creation in you. The Father sends it forth, and he's working with you. So let's go to Titus 3, verse 5. Titus 3, verse 5. It says, He, that's God, saved us not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So the power which renews and which gives you, you know, the spirit of a sound mind, um, which transforms the way you think, which washes you in the word. That's what we're talking about here. So let's turn to 2 Peter 1. Father. 2 Peter 1, verse 3 and 4 says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate, you may partake of the divine nature. This is coming, this is how God is working with you through the Holy Spirit, which is his own power so that you can be partakers of the divine nature. You can change the way you think and you can be kind of thinking along the family lines. Okay, um, Romans 8. Verse 14. It says, For all those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Okay, so this transforming power that's, that's you know, coming from the Father to you is the power through which we can enter the family of God. You can enter God's family because it's a family. It's therefore enterable, unlike a trinity. We're in Romans 8. Look at verse 9. Uh, it says, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So the Spirit is also the Spirit of Christ. Right? And you can read another verse that would look at that would be Philippians 1, verse 19. The Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of the Father are the same. Why? Because the Father and the Son are united in mind, purpose, and will. When Jesus was talking with, with people and they said, show us the Father. And he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because basically what he's saying is, everything the Father is, I am too. We are on the same page. So that's how the Spirit is one. There's one Spirit. It's the Spirit of the Father. It's the Spirit of the Son. It's the power of their way of thinking and their way of doing things. And the Spirit of the very Spirit of life. And therefore there is one Spirit. And the Scriptures say that the Father is in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say, well, the Holy Spirit's in you. And when it does say that, it's implying power of the Father and the power of Christ and the presence of the Father and the presence of Christ are in you through the Holy Spirit. That wouldn't be the case if they were a separate person. Although, you know, honestly, I mean, the Trinitarians have some really roundabout, bizarro way of making that all squaring, squaring the circle on that. But it's, it's very convoluted. So God is in you. Father is in you. Christ is in you through the Holy Spirit. Now go to Matthew 28, verse 19. And this is 
one of the favorite scriptures of Trinitarians. Matthew 28, verse 19, and you know, if you're having a short discussion with anyone about the Trinity, they might turn to this scripture and say, well, this is the one. Um, they might go to that one in 1 John, which is you know, something that was clearly added to, to uh, the Bible after the fact. But this is, the, this is, you know, everybody agrees this is valid scripture. And it says this in verse 19, therefore, this is the church commission, right? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all things I have commanded you. So this is the go-to verse believers in the Trinity will use to offer you as a proof. But what's really happening here? Let's, let's just think about this. What is, what is being said in this verse? What, what happens? We're talking about going out and baptizing people, right? Well, when you baptize or, or are baptized, what's happening? You enter into a covenant, a covenant relationship with the father, the head of the family. And the sacrifice of Jesus makes this possible. And you also have a relationship with him. But his sacrifice makes it possible. And then afterwards, what happens? You receive the power of the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. It's talking about the whole picture that's happening at a baptism. Right? Go to Acts 2, verse 38. So, it, it, I mean, it makes perfect sense that the Holy Spirit would be included there because... What's, if you don't receive the Holy Spirit, what's the point of getting baptized? It's essential to receive the Holy Spirit. That's why it's in there. It makes total sense. Of course it's in there. Um, Acts 2, verse 38, here's, here's the same concept, but expressed in different words. Peter is there. This is Pentecost, and the people have heard his, what he said, and they realize, well, we killed the Messiah. And they said, what should we do? And his answer to them is, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what's happening there in that proof text. It's not talking about three persons. It's talking about what happens when you are baptized and brought into this process whereby you can enter the family of God. Go to Ephesians 1 and verse 13. Ephesians 1 verse 13. This is a fascinating whole another sermon. The power of, this, of life itself that's what the Holy Spirit is. It's the power of life. And it uh, is given to you. Verse 13, and let's read verse 14 as well. It says, You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. What, my friends, are you saved from? Anyone? What are you? You're saved from death. That's what salvation is all about. You are saved from death when you believed and you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, which is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. It is the down payment of eternal life, of life itself, the power and force of life itself God puts in you. And so, you know, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you too have been begotten as a child of God. We, we talked earlier about Mary conceiving, right? No, by the Holy Spirit. You have been begotten as a child of God, by the Father, through the Spirit. That's what's happening. And you are looking forward to receiving the gift of eternal life, the fullness of it, the fullness of your inheritance, an everlasting inheritance in the family business. 
You're going to join the family business. What's the family business? What does the God family do? It rules the universe. When you think about what the church teaches about the kingdom of God, that's the gospel. Go to uh, 1 Peter 1. Verses 3 and 4, which say this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And as Jesus said, when I come, I bring my reward with me. Being kept for you, I'm going to bring it with me when I arrive. So in conclusion, I've got this mental image uh, <laughs> of this, after working on this message, of this supposed third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, as if, as if the Holy Spirit is like a bouncer at the door. You're, you know, you ever seen a bouncer at a, at a club or, you know, a private party or something like that? They stand at the door, you know, and I, I see him with, you know, a tats on his arm and a gold earring and, you know, maybe he's packing a pistol or something like that. He's a very buff, muscular guy, person. Well, he's not a person. It's a, an analogy. And so the Holy Spirit is of the, you know, this person of the Trinity is like a bouncer at the door, blocking the way in saying, God isn't really a family. God is something else. That family stuff, that's just a pretty little analogy for you simple humans. So you're not really going to be part of God's actual family. You're going to be something else. All right, so what is that something else? What is it? I think, you know, by their own words, it's something uh, incomprehensible. You can't even imagine, your mind just can't even wrap your, your mind around it. It's unexplainable. It's unknowable, right? That's what you hear from folks who tell you all about the Trinity and tell you all about the person of the Holy Spirit, that God's something else from what he says he is. And that's not, not really the destiny. That's not really what's happening here. It's, it's something else. And that, my friends, is not the gospel.